Rebirth. It can be literal in fiction, like when an important character is resurrected. Or it can be symbolic, like when films use a visual language to express thematic rebirth. Hello from elsewhere. I'm Valerie. I'm Casey. How are you, Valerie? I'm doing good. I have a fun little, uh, not really a story, anecdote maybe let's hear it and this episode was gonna have nothing star wars related and i was really proud but i'm sorry and this you're gonna anecdote. fail you're gonna fail right, us now right from the <laughs> gate i love star wars but i do tend to talk about it a lot and i wasn't going to and it was gonna be great but i do have something star wars related t- tangentially so um we obviously well not we i talk about general merrick from rogue one the mustached pilot Blue Leader, the greatest hero the Rebellion has ever seen. I talk about him a lot because I love him. So, and I've I've mentioned him like you know in the social media, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Like I might use the hashtag Merrick or General Merrick. And the other day, I noticed that we had a a follow on our Instagram from a pizza place, and I'm like, hmm, that's weird. How did this pizza place decide to follow? decide to follow this? random podcast that has like eight episodes out i was like what why is this pizza place following me and then i looked at the location because it says the location of the pizza place and this pizza place is from merrick new york (laughs) (laughs) you want to move there don't you (laughs) yeah that is my current uh the top of the bucket list is a pilgrimage to merrick new york will you eat their pizza (laughs) i will go to the pizza place yes (laughs) i should look it up so i can shout them out if anyone i don't know i don't know i've never heard of merrick new york um, Nor have I. So I wonder, I wonder where, I wonder where it is. That's funny. So they must have found you through the hashtag. Yeah, they must have the found, me, found me through the hashtag. Exactly. Or maybe they didn't follow me. Maybe they just liked a post. But it wasn't a okay. post that I had talked about. Merrick. Merrick. So yeah, soon we're gonna make a pilgrimage to Merrick, New York. Eat some pizza. Let's look up where. Will Merrick, you New York grow is. a mustache of specifically course. for when you visit? Maybe I'll bring my Lego General Merrick minifigure. He can come come along. I follow a blogger named Merrick. Does this blogger have a mustache? No, does she? She could have a mustache. <laughs> well, true, but she judge. does not. Well, it's near Long Beach. I don't know my way around New York, so that means nothing to me. But it's near <laughs> Long Beach. <laughs> you know. Oh, so it is kind of close to like New York, New York, New York, New York. Yeah, like like Manhattan, a suburb. But yeah, it looks like a suburb. East. Okay. Well, now we know. I don't even I don't even care to go to New York City, City? proper. Like I don't really love cities i doubt you can fly straight into merrick though it looks too small you probably have to fly into new york city just i can to get there. if i have an x-wing i can fly <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> mm, yes and you wonder about the questions our children ask us. <laughs> <laughs> i know every night at dinner it's like hey dad can, hey dad hey mom can we talk about star wars I'm like having to come up with good Star Wars discussion topics every dinner. It's exhausting. Uh, yeah. Our daughter, who is three and a half, we went to uh, Casey's grandpa's funeral. Mm-hmm. And we were at like the graveside, you know, they're doing the burying. And, and we're like walking up to it from our car. And, and she's three and a half. And our daughter asks me, can we talk about Star Wars? <laughs> and I was like, um, not right now. <laughs> There's a Read time the and a place. <laughs> <laughs> Read the situation. <laughs> yep. yep so there's a lot of star wars and i'm sorry that in an episode completely devoid of star wars i've just thrown it in there merrick new york merrick's merrick pizza i bet general merrick likes pizza 
If he only knew. Well, now I'm sad. That was mean. <laughs> Just saying he never lived long enough to find out. Long enough. I'm th- I'm 31 and I've eaten more pizza than I should. And he's like like yeah, probably 50s. Also in the Star Wars universe, we never see them eating pretty much anything, but let alone pizza. Mm, there's blue milk, melurons. Um there's green milk from the Thala Sirens, which I keep seeing that this is bug- like this is something that's bothering me and I need to bring it up. People keep thinking that the creature on Octo that Luke gets the milk from First of all, it's green milk. It's not blue milk. People keep thinking that's blue milk. It's clearly green. And people think, well, is that the creature that provides blue milk? No, blue milk comes from Banthas. Green milk comes from the Thala Sirens. How would be, like, this is a lost island. How would they be getting blue milk from this island that no one knows exists? It's very expensive imported rare milk. But no one knows this island exists except for those caretakers. And Luke, I'm very upset about this. There are two... (laughs) Completely separate things. There's bantha milk and there's Sathala siren milk. I love that you say that this keeps coming up and this is a problem. It, it does keep coming up everywhere. In your universe. <laughs> <laughs> I have yet to see it be a problem anywhere that I've ever looked on any internet. <laughs> Fine. The internet caters to us, to what we're thinking about. And so it Isn't keeps it throwing blue milk at me. Yep, that's my little PSA for the day. And already we have so much Star Wars in this intro, and I apologize. <laughs> because once we start on down a Star Wars road, it just continues. Mm-hmm. It's All a right. black abyss. So uh, today we're talking about rebirth, so I have a all-important question for you. Let's hear it. If you could be reborn or reincarnated as any fictional creature. Oh, not a person, a creature. Yes, creature. Okay. Even this episode, we won't really be talking about creatures, but any creature, what would it be? I'm sure I have a favorite Oh, I do. I got it. Okay, go ahead. I want to be an ent. An ent? Yep. Well, specifically, I'd be one of the lost ent wives, I guess. <laughs> but what if they're not actually lost and they're gone, gone? And then They got extinct. so fed up with those ent men and we're like, see ya. We're going to have our own society. <laughs> sounds pretty, uh, what's the word? It sounds like a utopia, man. Right. Women. Yeah. Women ents. Ent wives. Peaceful society. I thought for sure you were going to say Pergil. Oh, I do love the Pergil. So we've been going watching Rebels, which, again, Star Wars here (laughs) is coming back. And uh, and I've never seen all of the Rebels. This is like first time through for me. And the episode in season three? What are we in? We're in season three. And it's got Ezra and like befriends these space creatures called the Pergils that are kind of whale-like, but they have tentacles at the ends, kind of like a squid almost. They look a bit like space slugs, like distant cousins of space slugs, but with tentacles. Yeah, they are the coolest animals, and they are amazing. And spoiler, fast forward if you haven't seen all them, they can jump to hyperspeed. Yeah, apparently that's how the early... early, um, Space travelers? Space travelers, yeah, learned how to go to hyperspace. Copied the pergil. They copied the pergil. So also that shot where Ezra's standing on the back of a pergil and he right. ha- like uses his lightsaber to cut down a Tie Fighter. Put that the on the best. wall. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that was an awesome shot. So I'm gonna go with an ent wife. Ent wife, okay. Or a pergil. I'm cool with either of those. What about you? Um, maybe the ent wives just went to hyperspace. <laughs> That's out. why they just left. Hanging out with the pergil. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I want to be a phoenix, like in Harry Potter. 
because then I'm not just reborn into a phoenix, but I'm con- continuously reborn, reborn again and again. Like that, yes. um, Perpetually. Yeah, I would love that. I love the the phoenix phoenixes. I think they're a cool you have mythical creature. Fan. Yeah, always. So that'd be my choice. I don't have much to say about it, but you don't think you'd ever get tired of being reborn? Like, man, I'm comfortable in my maturity and my age. I'm good with who I am. Yeah. Like right now, me personally, I'm. I feel pretty good about myself generally. Like, not all the time, you know, not all the time, but more so now than when I was like a teenager. Oh yeah. So I don't want to go through that again. Go through childhood and adolescence again. No thanks. But phoenixes also live a simpler life. Like, there's no phoenix junior high, so I'm (laughs) I'm probably okay. I mean, in Phoenix, Arizona, there's a phoenix junior high, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm full of really bad dad jokes today i blame tyler carlin he asked me so to our listeners i was a guest on bacon and eggs a movie lovers podcast a couple weeks ago the lego batman movie episode and uh one of their hosts tyler asked me about dad jokes and i couldn't think of one on the spot and so now i think i'm overcompensating with really bad jokes this episode (laughs) so i apologize well let's jump right into our discussion of rebirths Uh, First, we want to talk about our literal rebirth or resurrections in literature. Yeah, three characters specifically, three of our favorites. And then uh, after that, we're going to talk about some more metaphorical, uh, symbolic resurrections or rebirth in two very specific movies. Because obviously most stories could be seen as rebirth in the sense of a character learning and growing and becoming a better person. But uh, right. We're going with some more littler, littler, literal ones. Yes. And uh, and then even with the symbolic ones, the sim- symbolism can get kind of heavy sometimes. So who should we start with? Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Okay, there's so much to say about Harry Potter. Do we want to just... Maybe we should talk about, like, just as a refresher. Overview. A refresher what actually happens to Harry. Okay. So Harry is... How to, how to best condense this let's see where to begin because <laughs> we're jumping into like the very last book in the last act of the very last book so. right as we know harry's been fighting off uh, or working to destroy all of the horcruxes but he comes to the point where he's seen um snape's memories and he knows from snape's memory of dumbledore talking to him um that harry has a bit of voldemort's soul in him and that Harry needs to um, let Voldemort kill him so that... Um, so that that, that Horcrux in so him, that Horcrux part of him... in him can die. Now, Dumbledore does say that it's important that Voldemort does it himself, which kind of leads you to believe that something else is probably going on there, maybe. At least I remember kind of hoping. And uh, it's hard to remember what you thought when you first read through. Yeah, it was a while you know? ago, yeah. Decade. That's crazy. <laughs> Read that more than a decade ago. Came out in like 2007? Mm, I thought it was or like 2008. 2008. I feel like it was my senior year. 2007. Yeah, yeah, right before my senior year of high school. That's yep. what I remember. 2007, yeah. 2007. Anyways, but yeah, I remember being kind of hopeful that, well, Dumbledore, Dumbledore says that, you know, Voldemort himself is supposed to do it. So then, you're like, maybe that'll, somehow it'll all work out, right? Um, plus, it's pretty rare that a story kills off their main character. Why does why does Dumb, uh, why does Voldemort have to do it? I don't remember that. I don't know that Dumbledore really explains, but later when he's talking to Harry at the Harry's train station mm-hmm. or whatever you call it, that he just says that if Harry 
willingly walks in and Dumbledore kills it, but he's that because of Harry's sacrifice, he's able to come back. Oh, interesting. I'm not sure what the exact qualifications there are. Dumbledore just likes to throw rules out there like that. Absolutely. He's like, this is important. Just trust me, (laughs) says Emma. Mm -hmm. But so Harry has learned this, and so he willingly walks into the Forbidden Forest where Voldemort is hanging out with his Death Eaters and uh, allows himself to be killed by Voldemort. And then he goes into this really clean white platform nine and three quarters where he chats with Dumbledore and then he chooses to come back which I think is important yeah I love that he he actually it's almost like he chooses it twice he chooses to die and then he chooses to live which I love that that double that parallel and that double choice that he has to make and because Harry uh, and Harry even asks Voldemort or not (laughs) Harry even asks Dumbledore and says I have a choice and he says you know I think so if you could hop a train and go on Mm -hmm. but harry realizes that there's still more to be done that he needs to return and so he does so i think we'll do an overview of uh, harry aslan and gandalf's deaths and rebirths and then we can kind of compare and contrast them how's that sound sounds great okay so we talked about harry so aslan of chronicles of narnia of the lion the witch and the wardrobe i should say so aslan's death comes about because Young Edmund is a, a traitor. You know, he gives away his brother, brother and sisters. And the White Witch says that, you know, the laws of the land, the deep magic require that Edmund dies. Instead of that, Aslan is willing to sacrifice himself um, to um, appease the deep magic of Narnia. And so he, again, willingly goes to the stone table where the white witch is pleased to humiliate him he she has her minions tie him down they shave his mane they put a muzzle on him you know, amid all the all the taunting and poking and kicking that happens and uh what i think is extra sad is when we can talk about this in the compare and contrast so maybe i'll save that Just cut that out <laughs> i'm not going to <laughs> um but and then Aslan's rebirth happens the next morning um when so after the white witch kills him with her sword or with, with her knife um she um yeah she kills him and then all of the you know her she and her minions leave and Aslan's left there on the white table and Susan and Lucy are trying to untie him but they can't um but then little mice come and chew away the ropes and uh you know after Susan and Lucy are, are certain that he is gone. They are leaving and they've turned and they you know are seeing like the first rays of, of the morning light that come and they hear this loud crack and they turn around and the stone table is broken and Aslan's not there anymore. And uh, Lucy asks if this is more magic that the table has broken and a deep rumbly Aslan voice behind her says says that it is, which I like that idea that, that his rebirth or that rebirth in general is is magic. And then Aslan goes on to save the day, or help save the day at least. They couldn't have won without him. They couldn't have defeated the White Witch. And then we have Gandalf, Gandalf the Grey in the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, the Fellowship is trying to escape uh, Khazad-dûm, and they, they're crossing the bridge, and then the Balrog comes behind them, and everyone's favorite, beloved scene, and Gandalf, you know, you shall not pass, and... Uh, oh, come on, you didn't flame do that. Of <laughs> you didn't do that justice. I can't. I'm not Ian McKellen. <laughs> I can do Obi-Wan, but I haven't practiced my uh, 
my Gandalf. <laughs> Should I do Obi-Wan as Gandalf? <laughs> sure. I want to hear it. Now that you've put that out there. Now you must... You, must you shall not pass. <laughs> my very exaggerated. You shall not pass. <laughs> my yes. my Obi-Wan turns into a, one of the Beatles really quick. One of the Beatles <laughs> with a cold. That's like, I start to do Obi-Wan and it, it just Shifts, it turns into melts. British rock stars. Um, so Gandalf says, you shall not pass and, and um, breaks the bridge and they start to fall. And then, of course, Gandalf says, fly, you fools. And then the Balrog's whip grabs him and pulls him down underneath and... Of course, all the fellowship is very sad, and there's some slow motion crying, and and it's all very sad. But then in the two towers, we learn all about what really happened, which is he didn't die. They fell for they're, they're like fighting for like weeks, which is hard to is fathom. It really weeks? Yeah, the book mentioned it's like weeks. Interesting. But I know he says you know time passed and we fight through the deepest depths and up to the highest climbs or I whatever. Think that's and, why yeah. he dies is just exhaustion. They've been fighting for weeks. <laughs> How could you possibly So they fall on? down into the water and then um, the description in the book's really cool. They're like going down in the water to the deepest parts of the earth where there's like living things that no one's ever, no one even knows, not even the dwarves know about and not even Sauron knows about. And they kind of make their way through tunnels back up the mountain, up the stairs. So Gandalf destroys the Balrog but dies in the process process and he's sent back naked to heaven and uh or not, not they don't call it heaven but the equivalent the middle earth equivalent of it's basically heaven and because Gandalf's really basically an angel and he sort of passes out of out of thought and time and we don't really know how long from his perspective he's been dead for and the powers that be send him back to middle earth uh he spends a little bit of time in Lothlorien healing and gets clothed in white and he becomes Gandalf the White and he meets Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn in the forest and at first they think that he's Saruman and uh, they can't really see him very well because of all the light and then they gradually realize that it's Gandalf and he says Gandalf that is what they used to call me and so he seems to be sort of regaining his memories a little bit and he's changed he's a little bit different but he's still Gandalf He's just Gandalf the White, and he's more powerful now, and it is awesome. He definitely goes on to save people. So, yeah, that is the one. Well, he's let the people, let the fellowship get away, too, through right. the sacrifice. And then, of course, he does a lot more once he comes back, too. So so that's a good overview. So I think something that's interesting with rebirths in general is that they only tend to happen to heroes who have more of a purpose to serve. Um, they come from a hero who has willingly sacrificed themselves like Harry, Aslan, and Gandalf all do. Um, and I think that sacrifice is a, a large part why they get to return and because they have more of a purpose to serve throughout the, the story throughout the rest of their lives. As you were talking, I didn't even think about this, but it's interesting the fact that both the White Witch and Voldemort also have rebirths because the White Witch gets summoned again in um, Prince Caspian. Oh, that's and right. And she comes back. And I don't remember... Or at least, like, they see her. I don't remember the whole... It's been a long time, so I don't remember all the situations surrounding that. But Voldemort has already experienced a rebirth up to that point in the fourth one. But it's it's unnatural. It's not because he's worthy in some way, and it's all painted in, in darkness, and it's clearly an evil thing that Voldemort's come back. Whereas, if you notice the symbolism of light in all of these, like, 
Harry, when he does it, it's um, when he sacrifices himself, it's dawn. Like they've been fighting through the night, right? Is it, mm-hmm. Isn't it dawn in the books? I know in the I movie. I think it's close to when close his rebirth, yeah. And, and even if it's not, there's also the light of the, the limbo train station, which is all white and very much right. about light as, as that symbolism of the resurrection and rebirth and, and new light and sunrise. Because like you said, with Aslan, there's the sunrise as well. Right. He's um, reborn at first light. Right. And, and Gandalf, he dies by plunging, you know, he plunges into darkness, but um, not only has he, he come back in white and lightness, but that's literally how Aragorn and... Gimli and Legolas see him as is that light blinding white mm-hmm. light right so when the uh, villains are reborn it's kind of a, a symbolism symbolism of the the evil that cannot be killed almost like it tends to you know come back um, and then on the on the flip side we have our heroes who are reborn from worthiness to to live again yeah and like you said before I don't think you can discount the choice of it there is definitely a choice in all of it and for all three characters and and sacrifice as well they're all they're all leaving people behind and those people do think that they're dead you know everyone thinks that harry's dead and um, as hagrid's carrying his body back and right the pevensey girls think that aslan's dead and the whole fellowship thinks gandalf's dead and the news spreads that gandalf's dead to the elves and yeah everyone kind of has to sit with that for a bit and it's important to I think thought about this those was characters. interesting. I thought about that too, like the the time that their rebirth takes. Like from Harry's perspective, he dies and then is awoken. It could only be a few minutes later, you know. Um, so that happens pretty quickly because he's still just laying there in the forest. Not much time has passed in the the real world, anyways. Um, despite his lengthy conversation with Gan or with not with Gandalf with Dumbledore. Um, <laughs> Let's count how many times he makes those up because right? it's bound to happen multiple <laughs> times this episode. <laughs> and uh, and then we have, uh, but then we have like Aslan's rebirth process takes the night. Like he's killed sometime in the night, and the Pevensey girls are are mourning his death for uh, throughout the night until the morning. And then we've got Gandalf's where everybody's mourning him for months the months weeks at least and it's it's a while and but and from his perspective he like it says he strays from thought and time so i i I don't think he's experiencing time in the same way that the fellowship left behind is i think from his perspective he's gone for an eternity like a very long time which is why it's it takes a a bit for the memory to come back of oh yeah people used to call me gandalf because that's not his that's not his name um his name is uh oh no such as an O. Olorin. I didn't know he had another name. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce it, but Olo, Olorin is Gandalf's real name. Gandalf just means elf wand or elf staff. It's just sort of a nickname that people gave him as the wizard. But he's he's a much older spirit than than that. Anyways, sorry, I got, a fast, got us off track. It's also fun to think about the, you know, we get a little hint of what Harry sees while he's dead. And of what Gandalf sees while he's dead. Um, just that, I don't know that much about, I don't remember that much about what Gandalf sees. They don't, it, there's not a lot of description lot. of it. A lot of it have to leave up to your imagination. But, but he at least says that he was he, there for a while, so right. he would have experienced things. He's also He also has to explain his whole death, too, because the Fellowship didn't see that as well. True. And uh, Harry, we get the whole scene of him with Dumbledore in the train station. You know, that's his version of a... A limbo and almost heaven-like place. Um, meanwhile, Aslan's we don't see any or get any glimpse of what he experienced 
in the in the meantime. Yeah, the focus seems to be on what on how the Pevensey girls are experiencing it rather than right. Aslan's perspective. Well, and I, I wanted to say about it's interesting to compare Gandalf and Dumbledore and, and their um, arcs and places in the story because Gandalf Gandalf comes back and um, it, it's with the intent that the Fellowship needs his help. But Dumbledore doesn't and it's this I don't I, I hate to like he does and he doesn't yeah I mean he he's more like the Obi-Wan like he's there like as a right. ghost so to speak but his presence is still felt I mean through Snape's memories and yeah. through his portrait in his office you know yeah um, and so he can kind of kind of help and guide people a little bit that way and I think it's a huge contrasting point and not that one is better than the other but just the idea that the fellowship and all of middle earth need gandalf and they need his um his power whereas harry potter is about this boy who in a lot of ways idolizes this wizard and never expects that that wizard's not going to be there and then when that wizard is gone he has to do it not alone because he has his friends and his family supports him with the resurrection stone and so he's not completely alone but in one sense he has to do a lot more alone than the fellowship has to do alone that's true i feel like aslan's death is definitely the most humiliating um at this point voldemort has already tried to kill harry multiple times and failed so he's like ready to just get it done quick right all he says is the boy who lived come to die and then he like tries to kill him really quick he tries to humiliate harry after the fact Mm. While he's on, the, you know, and Harry's trying to play dead still, while Harry, while Voldemort's like flipping him around with his wand, but Aslan is, you know, humiliated by the White Witch and her minions for a while there. I also think it's extra sad that Lucy and Susan, watching from the bushes, watch that humiliation, kind of like how Gandalf's fellowship they see him fall, or even how Hagrid has to watch Harry. That's true. Hagrid is there. I, was, I had forgotten. Yeah. So they do each have an audience that that we you know we see the sorrow and see how much they'll be missed. I think some people have seen Gandalf's return as um, kind of like know, unfair or so. There, there's um, a letter that someone wrote to Tolkien that said it was like cheating. You know, him coming back, and um, I guess I could see that. But anyway, the um, Tolkien wrote back to his name is robert murray i don't know who robert murray actually is if it was just a fan or another author or something but um tolkien says i think the way in which gandalf's return is presented is a defect and one other critic as much under the spell as yourself curiously curiously used the same expression cheating that is partly due to the ever-present compulsions of narrative technique he must return at that point um and there's some more that i might go into but why do you think Gandalf has to return like why can't Frodo and the Fellowship do things on their own I always felt like it was less about helping the Fellowship and more about Gandalf being the one to replace Saruman Mm. because Saruman as the fallen white wizard no longer holds that place and so someone needs to fill it I mean yes he does go on to help the Fellowship but I always felt like that was more his purpose is to fill that hole for Middle Earth so so later in that letter Tolkien says, Gandalf really died and was changed, for that seems to me the only real cheating, to represent anything that can be called death as making no difference. And then he quotes Gandalf, I am Gandalf the White who has returned from death. And do you feel like it it undercuts any sense of like tension for Gandalf to know, oh, he 
can't die anyways. You know what I mean? Like, is he too powerful? Or I've been thinking about that with each of these characters, mm. actually, because Aslan, he knows about the deep magic, and you kind of get the sense that he, that he, at least he says after the fact, that his being a willing, a willing sacrifice on the stone table would then break the magic. Um, so, but beforehand, he's very despondent, and he is slowly getting sadder as he and Lucy and Susan are getting to the table, and he's really quiet and kind of morose. And so you kind of get the feeling that he doesn't feel like he's coming back. Um, I would say that Gandalf doesn't feel like he's coming back. He thinks, you know, this is it. Fly, you fools. Like, get out of here. There's no hope. Um, and Harry is walking to his death thinking that's the end, you know? He even stops to tell Neville, be sure and kill a snake. He's like, Harry, or Ron and Hermione already know, but just in case, kill the snake. Um, so he's trying to cover his bases because he doesn't think he's coming back. And he even opens the um, resurrection stone in the snitch with the with the line, you know, I am about to die. Like, he really feels like this is his end. Um, but I like the line that Tolkien uses about, um, what is it about, to say that it has no change? To make, as making no difference? Yeah, what does it say about death? Just that it says Gandalf really died and was changed, for that seems to me the only real cheating, to represent anything that can be, can be called death as making no difference. Well, and so later, and maybe, so I found this other part of the letter too. So do you think he means that making, or that death makes, sorry, read it one more time for me. Gandalf, Gandalf really died and was changed, for that seems to me the only real cheating to represent anything that can be called death as making no difference. So is he saying that from the idea that so I think he's, for somebody's death, their death makes the difference? I think he's saying that, yeah, that death Or that does they make can't die and then they come back different. I'm not sure. But here, um, and maybe this will help and maybe it won't, but <laughs> um, he talks a little bit more about um, Gandalf's power and, and what that all means. And he says, Gandalf alone fully passes the tests on a moral plane anyway. He makes mistakes of judgment. For in his condition, it was for him a sacrifice to perish on the bridge in defense of his companions. So he's saying that it wasn't just easy for him. And um, even before this, he had said that he's still capable of pain and fear. So it's not like Gandalf thinks, I can just die and I'll be fine. Like, he doesn't know that. He, For all he knows, right. he can die. So he's, But the letter says, uh, let me read that part again. For in his condition, it was for him a sacrifice to perish on the bridge in defense of his companions less perhaps than for a mortal man or hobbit, since he had a far greater inner power than they, but also more, since it was a humbling and ab- abnegation of himself in conformity to the rules. For all he could know at that mo- moment, he was the only person who could direct the resistance to Sauron successfully, and all his mission was vain. He was handing over the authority that ordained the rules and giving up personal hope of success. So it's like saying that his sacrifice was even more than if it had been one of the fellowship, because because he was so powerful and knew so much and it was like he was if he fails there then the fellowship is going to fail without him kind of a feeling which is all interesting and none of this you really get necessarily from the text but that's so interesting too and it feels so much like the other two characters yeah um that harry's whole purpose of killing off the horcruxes and then killing voldemort so they can save wizarding kind and and save all the muggles from a wizarding overlords there's so much that harry has to do to succeed at that and so by his dying you're like well who's gonna finish the job um along with aslan aslan's the most powerful um but he's willing to make a sacrifice for edmund when edmund has no power if edmund had been the one to die it would have been mourning and there would have been sadness but 
Edmund wasn't going to make or break the battle with the White Witch um, like Aslan could. So I think that that, yeah, the bigger the sacrifice, the more important. I'm going to um, read one more last little part. And it's interesting to think of this last passage in the context of comparing and contrasting Gandalf again with Dumbledore and also with Aslan and sort of um, separating Harry from them a little bit because Harry is the hero and Aslan and Gandalf are more like the mentors to the heroes. Um, so the, yeah, this last little part of the Tolkien letter, he says, the crisis had become too grave and needed an, an enhancement of power. So Gandalf sacrificed himself, was accepted and enhanced and returned. Yes, that was the name. I was Gandalf. Of course, he remains similar in personality and idiosyncrasy, but both his wisdom and power are much greater. When he speaks, he commands attention. The old Gandalf could not have dealt so with Theoden nor with Saruman. He is still under the obligation of concealing his power and of teaching rather than forcing or dominating wills. But where the physical powers of the enemy are too great for the goodwill of the opposers to be effective, he can act in emergency as an angel. I just think it's interesting to think about like imposing wills and how sometimes Dumbledore does impose his will in comparison to right. Gandalf it seems to take a back seat more often and you don't you don't see a lot of Gandalf's power. I think he is much more powerful than you ever realize. Anyways, it's a really cool letter. It goes on uh, quite a bit. He he wrote this in 1954. So if you're interested in reading it all. but Going back to what Lucy asks when the stone table breaks and Aslan's body is gone, she says, is this some kind of magic? And Aslan answers and says, it is. And uh, I like the idea that these literal rebirths that have happened to these characters and it's uh, not a super common um, thing in literature I wouldn't say you know or that the rebirths that they hold this magic this power that they happen only at the greatest of needs um, and when those heroes have more to go on and accomplish so let's move into our second half here where we are excited to talk about the more uh, metaphorical rebirths specifically in two movies, Ten Cloverfield Lane and Gravity. And I have not seen Ten Cloverfield Lane. <laughs> I have no desire to see it. So you might hear my voice <laughs> a lot in this part. First of all, if you haven't seen those movies and you want to, this will be very very spoilery. I highly recommend them, although with the caveat that both can get pretty intense at times. And Ten Cloverfield Lane deals with like abduction and some... She, she talks in, about her past about abuse and it's it's a pg-13 movie but just that caveat it might be harder to handle if that kind of stuff freaks you out because it freaks me out a little bit but i'm also a man and have some privilege there so i not do not yeah i I totally understand if you don't want to watch that it's one of those movies where it's like well these are already some of my darkest fears so let's not feed them right so I've never seen it, and I have no desire to right. see it. <laughs> but even Gravity, you've seen Gravity, but and Gravity, we watched it last night I have as seen, prep. <laughs> and it still stresses me out, but not in a different way. Like, she's stuck in outer space, and everything's going wrong. You can say, I'm never going to space, and I can and say, fine. I'm never going to space, and so it's fine, you know, that's not going to affect me personally. But <laughs> So what about in, in, like, an apocalypse situation, and we have to go to space? You're just going to say, no thanks? Uh... Depends. Uh-huh. What's waiting for me in space? Is it better than what's here on Earth? Or if it's just an, a great unknown, I'd be like, meh, take my chances down here. I don't know, but I just thought about something, and this is completely moving backwards, but it's very important. When Gandalf goes from Gandalf the Grey to Grand- Gandalf the White, 
is that the point that he gains the power of sleeping with his eyes open? <laughs> or could Gandalf or the White, like or could Gandalf the Great already sleep with his eyes open? Mm, mm-hmm. These are the questions that keep me up at night with my eyes open. <laughs> I'm so glad you don't sleep with your eyes open. My friend Seth sleeps with his eyes open, and their son also sleeps <laughs> with his eyes open. So it's just it's a generational thing. So Gandalf's, he didn't really have parents. <laughs> Did he inherit that trait? But it's more of a being than a. I think it's a it's a from his increased power from Gandalf the Grey to Gandalf he the White. He sees even when he's sleeping. That's like, but you not know, really because Pippin slips past. In the RPG world of of uh, Lord of the Rings, it's like you get a new white staff, new white robes. Your hair is, what is whiter. RPG, wait. Role playing game. Oh right, and right. Not rocket propelled grenade or whatever. Um, <laughs> and white hair white clothes white staff and you can sleep with your eyes open Mm, that really adds to your stats yeah got it anyways i'm so sorry going backwards but that was just something i had to bring up because it was my one good planned joke for this episode and i'm trying to redeem myself from all the bad dad Dad. jokes (laughs) so i had to throw that in there but anyways space 10 cloverfield lane and gravity so the reason i'm i wanted to pair these two is to me, they're like, they're not in the same universe at all. They're not made by the same people. Um, they're not even the same studios. These are not in the same world at all. But in my mind, thematically, they're like siblings a little bit. And um, so anyways, we'll j- I'll just jump into 10 Cloverfield Lane. Again, if you heard my caveat and you're still interested in watching it, don't listen to this part of the episode because it will be spoilery. And it's very. this is like a movie that's very important that you watch with fresh eyes, not knowing what's going to happen going in. Gravity, you can kind or of guess. Or if you're like but me and have no plans on watching it ever. Then, then you can, can keep listening. Listen. Yeah, it's totally <laughs> fine. Um, so there's a, a character named Michelle. We first see her and she's in an apartment and she's very stressed out and she's leaving kind of, and she's packing. She's packing all her stuff and she's clearly distressed in some way and, and then she's leaving some stuff and taking some stuff and they do a good job of making it clear that she is leaving her boyfriend or husband or whoever lives there with her and leaving without telling this person. So she's just kind of going off on her own. So she drives away and then she gets in supposedly a car crash and then she wakes up in like what's essentially a prison cell. Her, she's got a leg, a brace on her leg from the accident, but the brace is also like chained to the bed. And she's hooked up to an IV, and it's all a little bit creepy. And you're like, okay. And obviously, she's distressed from all of this. And then um, this this cell has a very heavy, big door, and um, through it comes John Goodman's character, Howard. By the way, I think this is like John Goodman, one of his best roles. He is just terrifying in this movie. <laughs> and um, he says that there's been an attack on Earth. He says it's either the Russians or the Martians. They're not sure. And so, obviously, they paint the, the movie paints a picture of this guy being, you know, a little bit unstable, maybe. Insane. He's kind of an extreme prepper kind of a guy. But then Michelle meets another guy that's down there that's, um, that's living down there named Emmett. And he's like, no, there really was an attack. And this guy is much more trustworthy. So I won't give a whole synopsis because I should save time here. But it, you keep going back and forth as an audience member about, okay, is John Kidman's character telling the truth or is he lying? Because there's moments where he's kind of a warm almost friendly guy and then you know in the very next scene he will be very unfriendly and creepy and he's just kind of mercurial in that way and so but essentially 
her character, she's as low as low can get. She is, first of all, they're in a bunker. I didn't mention that, but this is John Goodman's bunker that he's made for just such a situation for an attack from Russians or Martians. And so she's underground. She's, so she's physically low. She's at the very bottom of the bunker in this cell and it's basically a dungeon and in her personal self she's very low because this is an extremely traumatic and stressful situation as it would be can i just say that Mm. if you're building a bunker for end of world times Mm -hmm. you bother building a dungeon cell part of it it doesn't really look like a dungeon but it's basically a dungeon. Well, it's like a cell, so it's just a just in case thing. No, if you're a prepper, no, everything is just in case. Is to have the point of having a bunker is to keep people out, not to trap somebody in, unless you've got your own issues. He man. definitely has a big door trying to keep someone out. That's the creepiest scene. I won't talk about that scene. See now, if you're telling me it's creepy, then I know it's really it's far beyond my my depths for creepiness. Yeah. But she keeps trying to escape, and she can't escape because. She's starting to realize that maybe maybe the air really is contaminated, as he keeps telling her, and maybe you're really not supposed to go outside. So her her running away gets thwarted, and the whole movie is about her, and she keeps trying to run away from everything. She's run, she starts the movie running away from her boyfriend. He he had tried to call her, and she didn't want to talk to him and even explain the situation, and. Then in the bunker, she's trying to run away, which, I mean, justifiably so. That's not a bad thing. Um, But then she has this scene where she's talking with Emmett about their past regrets. And she mentions um, that in her past that her father had abused them. And then she mentioned also in her past she had been in public at a store and there was a, a little girl who was being hurt by her dad really bad. And Michelle, the main character, she wanted to help but she didn't. She just ran, and she says, like I always do. So the the movie is clearly about her her growth as a character, and for the movie to work and for it to be a movie about rebirth, which I think it is, she has to make that turn from running to attacking. And I was going to say I won't ruin it, but if you've already listened, then it's kind of going to be ruined. So again, spoiler, she eventually does get out of this bunker through some she MacGyver's a, a hazmat suit out of a shower curtain with a d- picture of a duck on it. It's the best costume of any <laughs> costumes. People should cosplay as Michelle in this shower curtain hazmat suit. And there's some really interesting, and I don't know if it's intentional and if I'm reaching, but I'm going to say that I'm not reaching because there's a lot of birth symbolism even, like tight spaces crawling through the air ducts. She even at one point is, she has the hazmat suit rolled up into a ball and it's tied to her and it, it's almost like a, an umbilical cord. Anyways, I think it, it seems very much like it's about um, rebirth and she's moving from this low space up into the light, up into the air. And um, when she gets there, she realizes, oh, it actually was aliens. And so even though Howard was a horrible, horrible human being, an evil human being he was telling the truth about that part so (laughs) (laughs) but that's that part's important because she's still running she's running from from Howard and there's like a fire in the bunker and it explodes so Howard Howard dies but she's still been running and and instead of running from the aliens she discovers a way to face them and she fashions a Molotov cocktail essentially throws it at the alien ship and blows it up so she knows how to defeat these aliens and I'm not selling the movie very well, so 
if you watch it and you don't like it, it's your fault for listening to me first before watching it. Um, <laughs> but the, the end scene, which is possibly the most important part, is she's driving away in the car and obviously this place is like mostly deserted and she hears a distress sort of emergency system call on the radio and it's like if you're seeking help go to this place if you have experience um with like medical experience which she kind of does you learn and also experience with aliens which she definitely does go to this place so it's all about her making that choice there at the end to turn the car left or turn the car right and she goes toward i'm gonna attack i'm gonna fight i'm not gonna yeah exactly i'm not gonna i'm not gonna flee anymore i'm gonna fight and anyways i'll i'll bring this back a little bit after we talk about gravity but um i've talked a lot so let's talk about gravity okay before you move on what happens to the other guy Oh, Emmett? Yeah. Oh, you don't want to know. I okay. won't say that part. That's the worst. <laughs> right, then. Yeah, that's the scariest Let's part. Let's move on. <laughs> poor, poor Emmett. Yeah. I don't want to talk about Emmett. Let's talk about gravity. So gravity, interesting that uh, you talk about her name was Michelle, right? So in gravity, we have Ryan, a female Ryan, mm-hmm. and uh, she is... A doctor? She works in the hospitals. They never explain it fully, but... Right, but she works in the hospitals, but she's created some new system um, that I guess would pair well on the on the spacecraft that they have. The Hubble. They're the Hubble. They put it on the Hubble. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so she had only had like six months of training before going up. And so she's, you know, working on the Hubble. She's not a astronaut by profession. She's really only doing this one thing. And she then just happens to be there at the right you know the wrong time i should say (laughs) when a uh, russian satellite was um the russians shot down one of their own satellites and they um the debris from that satellite then kind of spirals out of control and hits other satellites and other things and so there's all this massive amounts of debris that are then spinning around the outside of the earth's atmosphere that um, then knocks into her ship that they the Hubble that they were working on, and uh, so then they're trying to get to another ship, and that ship is damaged, and then they're trying to you know she's trying to fix it, and it's just one thing after another where everything is going wrong, and you're really like fighting for her to get back to Earth. But it comes about that that we learn that she had a daughter who was four and died very suddenly, and that since then she hasn't really been very purposeful in her life it seems she's really just been with reason she's been very much in in just a, a following a routine and and not trying and and not uh, how, you, how would you describe it casey the opposite of carpe diem maybe there you go she's very much just living her minimum minimum life uh, after after or in her despair there yeah and she hasn't been able to accept that her, da- that her daughter has died and and let go it there's one scene where, because George Clooney's in the movie and he's the other astronaut that's up there trying to survive with her for a time. And um, she has to let him go and sort of float off into space and essentially die. Um, and he tells her, you need What's to... What's the mountain climbing movie where they have to let the other... The dad cuts the rope at the end. Um, vertical limit or think, a cliffhanger with... I, think <laughs> I don't think you're th- thinking limit. of cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, they're like climbing Everest, and it's like a do- it's like it, a father is and it with a d- Chris O'Donnell. I think so. Yes. Okay. See the one who's in the Bachelor. Yes. Yes, yeah, that one. Yep. 
I don't know if I've seen all The Bachelor other than him running from like hundreds of women in wedding dresses. Yep. Correct? That's the okay. one. Yeah, same movie. Yes, so that one. Um, I did not expect us to be talking about The Bachelor <laughs> in terms of rebirth. So, Valerie, tell me how The Bachelor is a symbolic journey of rebirth for Chris O'Donnell. I honestly don't remember. <laughs> it's been so long since I've seen the movie, and that was ages ago. Um, I'm sure I could come up with something now. He's fleeing from this certain lifestyle that he thinks will be his doom. So he's just like Michelle. Does he turn around and face the brides? Decides he wants to be married, not because he has to be. Anyway, he, uh, but no, I was just thinking about, I feel like maybe because that's my first memory of watching a movie, not Bachelor, but Vertical vertical Limit, limit. uh, where somebody is like, you have to let me go. And the dad like cuts his own rope because he's Mm -hmm. weighing his children down. Yeah, so same kind of thing. And George Clooney's character, Matt Kowalski, tells Dr. Stone, he says, you really need to learn to let go. It's a little bit heavy-handed maybe, but in the same way that Michelle's character is all about, she keeps running and won't face what she needs to face or is, is too afraid to. And like I said, within reason, it's a very traumatic, scary story. But but in Gravity, yeah, it's all about her learning to, to let go of, of death while also accepting it and therefore being able to live for herself. So she, I can't even, like, I can't appropriately describe how she does all the MacGyvering she does that she gets herself back into. Let's see, because she ends up at, like, the Russian space station. Um, she's in the ISS first. Yeah. And then she has to go to the Soyuz, which is the Russian capsule from the ISS. Right. But as she's getting into the ISS, and you can't talk about birth symbolism without that scene of her. Well, so she's been in this very heavy um, American United States suit. yeah, astronaut suit, and it's a lot of weight. And she gets into the ISS, and she can't really breathe, and you as the audience can't really breathe either. And she's because she's been running out of air, yeah. And so she like just gets in in time, and so you've been like holding your breath right. with her, yeah, very intense. So she starts to shed all that weight, and the movie. I just love that scene so much because the it's movie beautiful. has been like so fast paced and intense, and you're on the edge of your frantic, seat, yeah. and yeah, frantic is a good way of describing it, and it's exhausting, and it gets to that point where it just slows down just for a second and everything gets like quieter and she's just floating there by the door um, and it's framed so beautifully in like a circular way and then there's that there's just a cord behind her and she's in that like fetal position and it's very much like birth symbolism um right she looks like she's in the womb she's yeah curled up and she's just floating there with right. the, the lack of gravity yeah and so that's like the one of the first indications that this is a story about her maybe not the first indication but visually symbolically the first indication that this is a story about about birth and rebirth and resurrection and change yeah so she goes from the and then she goes from the iss international space station Mm -hmm. to the well that's when she gets in the russian capsule that's right and the russian capsule is too damaged to get her back to earth but she can take it yeah. over to the the chinese space station and she has to like do she kind of has to cheat the system cheat the trick the computer into thinking it's landing to use its last bit of rocket fuel um, to get to the Chinese station. But she puts on, it's interesting, she she shed all that weight, but she has to put on another spacesuit. But this one's a little bit lighter. So it's like she's gradually letting go and shedding that weight and gradually learning to accept that her daughter's dead and also that she could die. Right. So then when she gets to the Chinese space station and uh, she gets in 
their uh, little shuttle that could take her back to Earth that could do the reentry. But, well, is it in that one or is it in the Russian one that she... In the Russian the one, is where, one is where she thinks she's going to die. No, in the Russian one is where she thinks she's going to die. As it's... Because she hasn't... Because her vision of Kowalski is what makes her think to do the landing, the landing sequence That's to right. shoot it across toward the Chinese station. So, yeah, so it's... In, I just remember thinking that the guy that she's listening to on the radio is, isn't he Chinese? Um, I don't know if he's Chinese, but he, I mean, she's hearing him from Earth. Right. I'm just saying, I just figured she was in the, for some reason I was picturing her like in the Chinese. No. So she's in the Russian capsule, the Soyuz, and um, she, she realizes it's out of fuel. And so she gives up. She even turns off her oxygen. Like she's accepting her death. And even again, just like the other characters we talked about, choosing her death. Right, she's figuring, well, if I'm going to go, I'll just turn off the oxygen, breathe in the you know, CO2 and, and go that way instead of being exploded into space or anything else, freezing in space. Um, so she is trying to choose her own death. But then she has a vision of... Dumbledore? No. <laughs> if only. It's basically the same, her vision of Dumbledore, of George Clooney. Yes. But yeah, no, she has a. But what's his his astronaut's name? Oh, is? Kowalski. Kowalski. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going for. <laughs> when I when I looked at you to fill in the blank, <laughs> I wasn't looking for answers like. I'm Dumbledore. just thinking everything symbolically, man. That's yeah. just how I think. <laughs> and so Kowalski, she has like a, a vision of Kowalski talking to her about how this could work, and so then she kind of reawakens to the idea that she can succeed, she can do it. And not only that, but she can like really fight to have a, uh, her life be the way she wants it instead of just accepting what's happened to her. Right, and so she um, sends that Soyuz, you know, she's accepted that she could die, but then also cho- chooses life and um, rockets toward the, the Chinese station. And then when she gets in the Chinese station... Well, first of all, she wallies through space for a second with the the um, fire, extinguisher. fire extinguisher. And that's how she gets to the Chinese station. But the Chinese station is starting to enter the Earth's atmosphere. So it's starting to burn up. So she has to get in there really fast and get into the capsule. And super intense. And because it's hitting the atmosphere, like parts are breaking off of it. And she's trying to get it working when it's trying to fail. Yeah, so she gets in that capsule and starts rocketing toward Earth. And it's very claustrophobic and very much, I don't know. I just, I think there's a lot of birth, birth symbolism in, in the capsule and it's entering Earth's atmosphere. And also the music is important too, because up to that point, all the music is very otherworldly, but the closer that she gets to Earth and survival, you get human voices in the music, which is really cool too. More choral, huh? Yeah. So she finally lands in water. Looks like a giant lake of some kind. We don't really know where she is. That's the only part that I get scared in this movie is the water. I'm like, I can handle the space intensity. Space it's the water she lands intensity. She in the water, and then the water, she tries to open her capsule door so she can swim out, but of course the water pushes her back in. And again, it's claustrophobic, and she's trying to get out through a small space. I don't want to be graphic with the symbolism, but, <laughs> water, but it's there. You know. yeah. <laughs> she has a water birth, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. So she finally makes it up, but even then she's in her suit still, um, but with the the helmet part of the suit. So all the water gets in her suit and is weighing her down. So she hits the bottom of the lake, and she has to shed the that suit that weight, um, so that she can swim to the surface. And the music and the 
image of her finally making her way to the shore and and she doesn't even lay there for very long um on the on the sand she is like immediately pushing herself back up into standing but she has to her journey is is very much like birth and toddlerhood and childhood she she gets onto land and she has to crawl for a second yeah she has to get up and stand when she walks it's not like a super competent walk it's she's kind easy of easy gait she's yeah wobbly kind of she's stumbling she's but yeah she really is like learning to walk again learning to pick herself up yeah and just like the end the very last scene of 10 cloverfield lane this one also really iterates um that character's journey and and the choice and and the resurrection, so to speak, uh, as a character, at least as a person, and choosing to live your life the way you really want to. Both. The end. Well, I can't say both beautiful. Gravity is a beautiful movie. I haven't seen the other one, but yeah. definitely worth a watch. I love 10 Cloverfield Lane. If you want a thriller that really knows how to handle tension and twists, it's really, really good. And character as well. But it, it, I also, the reason I feel like these are these movies are connected is is in Gravity, Ryan Stone is you know up in space, and she's trying to get down. Her her trajectory is is from up above going down. And I like the the mirror image of Ten Cloverfield Lane being down low in the ground, trying to get up. And both of their journeys end at sort of the middle ground of, of Earth and and walking there and living there. And I just think it's beautiful. And um and I think these stories are connected too in just the way that they're shot and the choices that are made in terms of both movies stick very much in a third person limited point of view of the main characters like with gravity we don't we hear we hear from houston but we never see scenes of of houston like the apollo 13 mission control kind of she feels very isolated out there in space yeah it helps with isolation it helps with just staying with that character it makes things i think simpler in a good way and 10 cloverfield lane is very similar in that it just sticks with the character and you don't know has there been an attack? If there has been an attack, is it Russians or is it aliens? You, you know, it's um, and it's the Russian satellite that they shot down that oh created this. <laughs> You're right. More connections. <laughs> of course, it didn't end aliens, up being though. the Russians. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> ended up being aliens, but they were a contender, <laughs> as we are wont to portray them in our American movies. And then, maybe lastly, both stories are about main characters coming to terms with their past and accepting their past and accepting that also they don't have to be defined by that past right life moves on past that their their rebirth their decision to move forward thanks for listening to this episode today Uh, if you'd like to follow along with us you can find us at elsewhere underscore pod at twitter and on instagram share with us there your ideas on these episodes of rebirth maybe there's some characters we really missed out on that you're like hey this is a major rebirth character. Right. We were pretty specific in this episode, but there's definitely more out there, um, both literal resurrections and, and uh, symbolic ones, too. Symbolically, especially. I feel like coming up with literal ones was a little trickier. But. Yeah, especially outside of the fantasy realm. Yes. But, well, thank you, and happy beeps. Happy beeps.